Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on July 26, 2015 at Preservation Hall in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. The theme for the evening is salvation. Joan Prug, come on up. Well, this happened about 10 years ago. Should I hold it? And it wasn't me that was saved, but I'll, I'll tell you, it was about a cat. Um, I've always loved cats. I've had cats since I was very young, and I introduced my son to cats, and he just loved them also. And I was a single mother, so most of the time it was just my son and me and a wonderful cat. And, you know, cats come, and sometimes they leave us. But uh, my son finally went to college, went to medical school, and had, you know, been living on his own for quite a while with any, no animals. And I had, at that time, a dog and a cat. And so I was living in Colorado. My son was living in Boston doing his internship. And we knew he was going to have to go to New York for his residency. He became an ER doctor. But he was just you know, starting out. And he moved into a beautiful house in Jamaica Plain in Boston. And it was a basement apartment in a wonderful home with a great family, with two daughters who both played the violin, which we could hear through the floor. And they had a cat. And they told my son he could get a cat. So when my son came home for Christmas, we went to the animal rescue place, which was just wonderful, and you got to interview your kittens. And my son picked this lovely black cat, and he took three days to name him, wanting to name him a name that fit, and he named him Jake. So Jake went with my son to Boston and lived in this down you know, apartment, did, never went out, but was just a sweetheart, purred when you just said hello, and was just a wonderful cat. But sure enough, in July, when my son had to go to New York, he was not able to take the cat. So I flew in, and it was understood I would bring the cat back to Colorado and take care of him. And at that point, I wasn't sure, but something happened. And within a year, I ended up moving to Connecticut, where I had a home that I'd rented out. So the, now I had my cat, my son's cat, and a dog. And you know, I was planning to drive across the country with the animals. I found out Holiday Inns have animal-friendly places, so that was my plan. And I worked right up till the last minute, and the moving men came in my very last day of work, and they said, well, we're going to just wrap some things. I'd already done my dishes and stuff, but they were going to wrap up some furniture and label stuff, and then the next day they were going to pack it in the moving van, just a part of the moving van, take them off. So I said, well, you can let the cats and dog out in the fenced-in yard, and Jake Unlike my other cat, who was used to indoors and outdoors, Jake would go outside for five minutes, and then he'd you know, mew to come back in because he was a little overwhelmed. But he did kind of like it. But he was just getting used to outside. So when I came home, the movers had left. And I looked around, and I saw my cat and my dog. But Jake was not around. So I called the movers, and I said, what, do you know what happened to the black cat? He was the black cat, my first, and my son's first. And so. They said, oh, yeah, he went out and didn't come back. And I just knew there was something wrong with that because he was so, you know, just getting used to outside. So I said, are you sure? And they said, oh, we're 100% sure. And I said, 
is there any chance that you could have closed him into something in the furniture because, you know, they pushed in all the drawers and wrapped everything. And Jake's favorite place was in my grand piano, believe it or not. You know, I had it open this much. You can open it this much, but I always had it like this. And in Colorado, it's so dusty. My piano tuner had said, put some felt on top of the strings and it will keep the dust from going in the piano. So Jake loved to lie on this piece of felt right here in his little cave. He was, you could see him, you know, right on the edge of the uh, part of the piano that went up. So I said to the movers, is there any chance you could have closed him in the piano because they had wrapped up the piano? He said, uh, absolutely not. We would have seen him. No, no, no. And I said, well, what about in one of the drawers? Absolutely not. No, no, no. So I believed him and I asked my brother and my sister-in-law to help me look for Jake and turned out the kids in the neighborhood also joined us and I stayed three extra days looking for wonderful Jake. We put up signs on all the uh, telephone poles and the kids in the neighborhood helped me find five black cats. <laughs> but of course, none of them was Jake. <laughs> so I finally ended up deciding I had to go and Jape had a little chip in him, so I figured, well, maybe someday someone would find him. But I thought, well, maybe it's an older lady who doesn't know about chips, and he's in a good home, and that's all I could you know, comfort myself with. So I was driving across the country, and you know, from Colorado, I, I got into Kansas, and I just couldn't live with myself. So I called the movers again, and I said, if I paid you a lot more money, would you skip the stop that they told me they were going to make in Pennsylvania to see their four wives and four, you know, all their children, because there were four guys, and they were bringing me to Connecticut. I said, you know, that was going to be 13 days. I said, you know, those five days, could you zip to Connecticut just in case Jake's somewhere in there and then see your wives and children? And they said, sure, for the amount of money I offered. But it was partly because it was my son's cat, and I just felt, how can I lose my first little grandson? So, so, you know, I was driving on, alternating, hopeful, and then thinking always with a nice little old lady in Denver. I finally got to Connecticut, and I, I have a house that's at the bottom of a huge hill, and the driveway is very steep, and of course the moving van couldn't come down. Oops, is that my time? I'll, I'll finish up. So, um, we hired a U-Haul to bring the stuff down, and of course the piano was the last thing to come down, and he wasn't in any of the uh, bureaus, but they finally brought the piano down. They started at 7 in the morning. It was 7 at night, and they're like, okay, lady, and they just you know, thought I was crazy, and this was going to be you know, a nutty old lady. Well, they opened the piano, and I've never seen a cat do this, but two paws reached out. <laughs> And he said, oh, Mew, it was so beautiful. And Jake was saved after eight days and nights. And he just came out of there and was purring. And the vet said, oh, he was just a little dehydrated. And that was the story of Jake's salvation. So thank you. Rebecca Levin. Welcome, Rebecca. All these women, this is the first, I love it. So when I was 16, I went to India alone because either my parents loved me very much or they really, really needed some alone time, some combination of the two. But uh, this isn't the story of going there or what I did while I was there. I was with a group once I got there, flew in alone, but rather a story about coming home. It had been about two weeks with the group and I loved 
loved, loved my time there. And I was up late, finally back in New Delhi after traveling to the northern Buddhist country. And I was up late watching TV and thinking to myself, oh, I'm not ready to leave. This is so wonderful. This is also the story of how I learned not to say that while abroad. Because even though for two weeks I had woken up from my watch every day without trouble, and I set my watch before, the next morning when I had to be on my plane waking up early, I did not wake up to my watch. I woke up and it was the time that I should have been getting into a taxi departing the hotel to the airport. And luckily I had everything else pretty much packed threw my toothbrush and everything in, threw my pajamas in, threw on clothes, ran down to the desk and said, I need a taxi, I need a taxi right now. And they're like, mm, okay, okay. So I'm sitting there waiting, shaking, going like, I should be at the airport, I should be at the airport now. And eventually a taxi came, and I'm so nervous, I'm in the back, I'm like, we have to go, we have to go fast, we have to go fast. And it's still kind of dark, dawnish, and we're going, and we get to the airport and it's all a bustle and it's the day after Indian Independence Day and it's two days after the um, attempted bombing in London with the liquids, so everything was super high security and I was going through London and I'm so nervous and I go and I get up to my line. There's still two lines for my gate. I'm like, okay, okay. Still two lines for check-in, and I'm in the, one of the lines, and I realize everybody else has their bag totally shrink-wrapped, okay? I have to go back over there. I go back over there. I get it shrink-wrapped. I come back. There's one line, but there's still people in front of me. There's one more person, but there's still people in front of me. It's getting close to the time. I get up to the desk, and they say, we're sorry. The gate is closed. The plane is leaving. <laughs> and I was 16 in India on my own, and the tour guide had left on the plane the night before, and of the people I was with, one was in a monastery for some, spending some more time, one was sick and staying with an acquaintance, and two were probably shacking it up in the hotel. And I'm like, I'm 16, I'm alone. I didn't like to cry in front of people, and I just like, tears straight down, and immediately, instead of, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do, it was, Miss Miss, we'll, we'll, we'll figure it out. So they took my bag, then they realized that because of the whole London issue, I couldn't actually have a carry-on. Everything had to be in a plastic bag. So I got like my book, my information, shoved it into that. Somehow they wedged my carry-on bag in behind the shrink wrap into my suitcase. And they took me, escorted me around the long security line to the front. I got patted down, wanted everything. I get out thinking that the plane is leaving and the doors at the gate are closed. And I panic, complete panic, start crying. And a woman comes over and says, oh, hello, are you okay? What's happening? And I said, hi, I was supposed to get on my plane and I'm 16 and I have to get back and, and, and it's gone, and it's gone, and she said, Oh, which plane? Oh, that's been delayed. My name is Davinda. Why don't you come with me? And she took me to the bathroom. We washed my face. She took me, she sat with me, talked with me while we waited for the plane to actually be ready and boarded. And she was getting off in London. And during that time, she stopped. She checked on me first and we said goodbye. And I had never felt so sure of divine intervention as when a woman named Davinda comes to save you. That's my story.
Morrow. I grew up in the era of um, 77 Sunset Strip. Remember that TV show? How many people can remember that? Yeah. Ephraim, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr., what a name. And he was so well-dressed and so suave, but the guy that everybody liked was Kookie. Kookie, lend me your comb, because Kookie was cool. He, they did a 77 Sunset Strip. And Cookie had long hair and he combed it and he, he was the valet and he would jump into the car. He didn't open the door. He put his hand on the windshield and the door and he'd swoop himself in. And wow, he was cool. I wanted to be cool. I was at the age when I really wanted to be cool because girls liked cool guys. And so when I finally got a job and I was going to buy a car, I was looking at cool cars like a Porsche or a Jaguar. And what I bought was an Austin Healey, an old Austin Healey from England, and it was real. It had no back seat. It had no door handle. You reached in through a flap in the plastic window, which you could take out and put in the trunk. When you put the trunk down, it slid behind the seat and it was four inches from the ground, it was low, it was cool. How can I drive by any girl and her not look at me and think, gooky, gooky. No, I mean, not that kind of kooky. So I was living in New York and I had a date with a girl in Boston and I really liked her and I wanted her to like me. So I'm gonna drive up there for the first time in my new really cool car. And I'm zipping down the highway with my top down and I'm going by cars and I can just imagine kids looking out and going, wow, mom, look at that guy, so cool. <laughs> I had a great imagination. And all of a sudden though, the car started bucking and and I pulled over and I quit running. So I had been a mechanic, I opened up the hood, I figured what was wrong, I wasn't getting any, getting any gas. So I checked it out, I knew I, had, I knew I had gas in the gas tank. The fuel pump in that car, to get to it, you jack the car up and you take the wheel off. These were the wheels with the things. Um, <laughs> And, and, yeah, spoke wheels. And behind the driver's seat was the fuel pump. It was an electric fuel pump, and it pumped the fuel up to the engine. It wasn't working, so I took a wire off, and when I tapped the wire up against the terminal, the screw that it goes on, there was a little spark, and I could hear a little click. Ooh, click, 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 and it was pumping fuel. So I thought if I could just keep doing that, that initial surge of electricity, <laughs> but it's behind the driver's seat and I've got the wheel off. So I'm thinking. <laughs> I open my trunk and I look and there's salvation. A piece of wire, a thin piece of thermostat wire. And I think if I can wrap this around the terminal 
and find a good strong source of electricity and I could cut the wire and tap it together in the front seat while I'm driving. And yeah, and yeah, you laugh. You think that's not possible. So I did. I ran the wire up through the back, got it over the windshield and down to the fuse. And I tapped it into the fuse. And then I cut the wire and I stripped back the insulation. And I went, and it went tap, tap, tap. But I wanted to use at least one hand for driving <laughs> and shifting. So I wrapped it around my thumb. I wrapped the other piece around my finger. And as I was going like this, there was a little spark. Click, click, click. I pushed the starter and the car started. And now I'm headed back off out of the breakdown lane and I'm going along, but there was not enough wire to put my hand down here. So I'm driving along like this. And I'm sure that all the cars I had passed, the kids are looking out going, Mom? That's kind of kooky what that guy's doing. <laughs> and I realized I, could, I, I got it up to 40 miles an hour because you can only do this so fast. <laughs> Salvation. I take it off my thumb and I put it on this finger. <laughs> I can get twice as many little Little electrical sparks and clicks. I got it up to 45. And I'm driving along with my head down. My ego would be in the back seat, but there is no back seat. And I think I need help. And there came my salvation, a hitchhiker. And I pull over. And because there were no handles on the outside of the door, you had to reach in and pull a, a leather-covered cable to open the door. I reach over. And I swing the door open. Picture Jack Nicholson in The Shining. Where are you going, sailor? <laughs> Hop in. <laughs> he picked up his suitcase and started walking. He'd rather walk. <laughs> so I had to shift the car into first and drive up and say, I have to explain this. I'm, yeah, but if I don't do this, <laughs> My car won't run. You know, you've seen this before. <laughs> so I had to say, okay, I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to, I, I think it was back to this by then. I'm going to stop doing this and the car will quit running. So I stopped doing it and the car quit running. I said, now watch this. I pushed the starter, it went rrr, 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 rrr. Then I pushed this again, the car started up. He got in. 
And he sat there like this. <laughs> all the way to 128. <laughs> and I'm sure somewhere there's this, a guy at the moth <laughs> who's saying, you know, I was hitchhiking once. Thank you. Rick Schnur. Did I say that correctly? Hi, Rick. Thank you. Let's see where this goes. I was working for a startup company when I was in my early 20s, and the pace was really frantic. So we would work, actually there was something, I was a software engineer, and there was something they called the engineering booty room. We actually slept there at night, and they would bring in food with us, for us, and our whole lives, were, we lived there. Like night and day, we slept there during crunch periods where we had to deliver stuff. So it was just a, it was just a crazy time. And all our meals during the day were eaten at our desks while we were working. So software engineer, you don't think of this as a dangerous job, but here's my near-death experience as a software engineer. I'm sitting there eating a roast beef sandwich, and while I'm working, it, it occurs to me that it's been a while since I last breathed, like inhaled. And the thing, so the thing about choking <laughs> is that it's when you're really choking, you don't breathe at all. I had never had that experience before. So. If you're coughing, if you are trying to bring something up, somebody's hitting you on the back, that's really uncomfortable. And when you're actually choking, it's not like that. It's not that uncomfortable, really. So my first thought was that. It was, I haven't inhaled in a while. And then I thought, well, all right, I should really do something. If this is real, I should really do something about this. And I thought, OK. I wasn't panicking at all. It was odd. And I thought, well, first I'm going to go to my, what I consider to be my most reliable coworker. So we were working in cubes, and I went a couple cubes down, and there's a guy who just, you know, one of those guys, he just always comes through. So I just went and did the, is, I think this is universal, the thing, the pointing to the throat thing, I don't know. And he kind of looked at me quizzically, like, you know, is he, you know, Rick's kind of a jokester, I don't know, you know. He, but there was nothing there, no recognition, nothing. And then so at that point, still no panic, but I did start thinking about, like, is this it, you know? And I was kind of an adventurous guy at the time, uh, kind of a thrill seeker, and I was thinking if I'm gonna die early, I wanna be remembered for like my parachute didn't open or, you know, my hang glider caught a crosswind or something, but not, that I choked on a roast beef sandwich at my desk at work. Like, that would really be a bummer. So these thoughts are going through my head. And then I went to another coworker, same thing, just like doing the universal thing, no recognition, nothing. And then that's where I started getting a little philosophical, like, <laughs> wow, um, this could be it, I don't know. But, then I went to, and this is interesting because the people, I don't know, I think we all find this in life, where the, the people that you 
think are going to be the ones that come through are sometimes the last people to come through, and the ones that are least responsible sometimes are the ones who are there. So I went to like my last choice guy. <laughs> you know, the last choice guy is this guy Rob. He's like late for everything. He's never there when you need him. You know, I'm thinking, all right, whatever. And we're down to Rob. So I go to Rob, and I'm pointing to you. It's like this, and Rob like sprung into action. It was unbelievable. He sprung into action. He jumped up whirled me around, grabbed me by the clavicle, I guess, you know, pulled it out, roast beef launches, is <laughs> like launched, and I'm fine. And that was it. That was Rob, like, saved me. It was incredible. The most unlikely guy. I had a whole new perspective on Rob. But anyway, then after the fact, I thought, well, is this something that I should really think of? Should I learn something from this? You know, this feels like it should be some pivotal moment in my life and I was thinking I don't know you know life is kind of short maybe I'm not living it the way I should you know all those kind of things but I'm thinking about these and I'm relating some of these thoughts to co-workers and there were these guys who worked in the warehouse adjacent to us who were some a few of them were privy to the conversation and for these guys you know they nothing was sacred for them I guess nothing you know I mean they can make a joke out of anything and I'm relating this, and they're just cracking. They thought it was hilarious. And, and so their big thing was, where's the piece of roast beef? <laughs> you know, like that was what they took from it. <laughs> so there was this like company-wide search for the roast beef, which was never found, <laughs> which makes my story less believed, but I swear there was roast beef, and it came out when Rob, you know, squeezed my clavicle. And then the next thing was, every time they saw me from that day forward, I had a nickname, Roast Beef. They just <laughs> referred to me as Roast Beef. Anyway, so now I have this odd relationship with Roast Beef, which I feel like it should, you know, it should bring something forth in me. But I, it's this mixture of being called Roast Beef, of the guys who didn't come through, of I don't know. But anyway, I am to this day grateful for my friend Rob for saving my life that day. <laughs> okay, welcome to the stage, Danielle. <laughs> Vanessa's my sister-in-law, just love her. Um, so she dragged me here. Uh, <laughs> it's my first mosquito slam. So my story, like many others, has got a different take on Saved, um, but mine also has to do with a parent, my mom. She passed away four years ago, but I feel like she saved me by instilling uh, my imagination and my creativity because I think daily life can get kind of grinding uh, when you have a family and a spouse, and um, it's nice to have those tools to kind of take you away and take the edge off of daily life, but for you to completely understand um, how that imagination in me developed, I'll have to start from the beginning. Uh, my mom was a sculptor, and uh, by the end, she was making very beautiful pottery and uh, water fountains, and they were in galleries all over, but um, there was a beginning. She was a hippie, a uh, flower child in every sense of the word, and um, when she first brought my dad home to visit my grandparents, he stepped out of a hearse. <laughs> and he was wearing a white suit, and he had long hair and a long beard. And my grandparents had said they thought it was Jesus Christ. And uh, 
from there, they decided they were going to hitchhike to San Francisco cross-country from Syracuse, New York, where I'm from, uh, with two St. Bernards, and they got picked up, and they made it there. And they lived in trees, and they picked fruit with immigrant workers, and they jumped from trees when immigration came and ran for their lives. And... <laughs> And, um, and then they found out they were pregnant with me on uh, Haight-Ashbury Street in a clinic. And then they decided it was time to pack up and go home and make a go of it. Uh, it didn't work, so now my mom is thinking, I'm going to sell my sculptures and make a living out of this. And at the time, uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy was really popular, uh, early 70s. And so she was making wizards and dragons and elves. And so as a young child, my imagination is just running wild. And she's reading fairy tales to me every night. And now she gets a phone call, hey, come set up your booth at this Renaissance fair. And so I'm living for weeks on end in my summers in Renaissance fairs. Like, who doesn't do that? And... Um, I'm, you know, so you'd think like after weeks of like living and camping with these people that they would step out of character for just a minute, you know, but, you know, like King Arthur and Queen Elizabeth and I, I mean, they've seen me at, you know, every bonfire and week of it, they're never like, hey, what's up, you know. Um, so as a kid, your imagination's going crazy. And I remember one year there was uh, Merlin, the magician, and he never got out of face paint. And, you know, even on the weekdays, Renaissance fairs were only on weekends. And... Uh, <laughs> Weekdays, this guy was not out of face paint, and I'm a little kid, and I'm like, Mom, what's up with that? She's like, yeah, I don't know. So you can imagine, you know, my creative writing pieces in elementary school, my, I don't even know. But um, so then, you know, when we weren't at a Renaissance fair, we'd be driving our beat-up van, you know, which was barely held together, and we'd be driving, and it'd be shaken apart, and there'd be no heat, and I'd be in a sleeping bag all the way up to my neck, and we'd be singing solid gold oldies, and... But we go to like Central Park shows and I'm thinking, oh, now I'm going to meet some really sophisticated artists and some really, you know, cosmopolitan cool people. But no, um, I met Mitch the Turtle Racer and that's who we stayed with all weekend. And he really raced turtles for a living. And they lived in his tub and they all had numbers on their backs. And we would sit at his piano after the show was over and he'd bang out tunes about a dragon named Blaine who liked to walk in the rain. And I would sleep in a hammock in the middle of Greenwich Village on a roof. And that was cool. But anyway, not your normal suburban life still. And um, so, you know, it's now the early 80s. All my friends' moms are wearing leather pants, driving sporty cars. My mom still got her flowy skirts, her long hair. I would not step into her closet unless it was Halloween. And um, so needless to say, I just, you know, my imagination was, was going crazy as a kid. And I just think the way daily life is, um, it can get the best of you. So to have a good imagination and to have some creativity to get you through, um, I think is, is pretty great. But my father-in-law, Steve, said I needed a punchline at the end. <laughs> So here it is. Um, I was really imaginative when I picked out my husband, Jeff. I was really creative when I made my family. And they're my daily salvation. Thank you. <laughs> we please stand up, Helen Wilson. Yes!
asked me to do this. Um, I have a kind of a gentle salvation story. Uh, I'm uh, 67 now, and back when I was about 60, um, I grew up here, and we lived away for a long time. And some of you were old enough to maybe have experienced, even with a good life that you have appetite for, the thing that can happen when you get older, when you look back and you think, God, I remember the first time I was in love, or I remember when I first started doing what I do. You know, I'm a painter, and I remember the passion, and I remember being a young painter and thinking, looking at older people's work, thinking, oh, I would never let my work get like that. I would never lose appetite for it. Well, there I was in my 60s. And I like doing things, and I have happiness, and I have people who love me that I love back. But I hadn't felt that thing that you feel when you're, let's say, in your early reproductive years, and you go to a party, and you see somebody across the room, and you just boing, <laughs> And um, it's very disturbing, because I can't see your faces. Um, and I hadn't had that feeling, and I was beginning to have that sadness thing that can come on when people get older. It's probably partly physical. You know, there were things I couldn't do with my body, like run five miles without, you know, feeling like a broken down truck. Anyway, we had moved back here year round, and it was April. And <clears throat> I'd been working very hard, feeling kind of jaded and kind of as if life was very plain, worth living, but very plain. And I realized that I hadn't seen the water in about two weeks, which is something that can happen here if you live here all the time. You, I live on Route 6, so I'm not right on the water. And I thought, what is this? This is crazy. It's April, and there was going to be a full moon that night. And there's this thing, if you go to the bay in the spring and the fall, when there's a full moon, you can, if you stand on a dune at the bay, you can see the moon come up over the trees to the east, and you can see the sun hanging over the horizon and the west, both at the same time. So I thought, I'm going to do this. I'm really going to get out of the house. No cell phone. I took my boyfriend's truck, and I drove to Boundbrook. I was serious. I wasn't just going to the harbor. I was going to Boundbrook. And to get to Boundbrook Beach, you have to drive west along a dirt road. And the sun was already down below the trees. And it was kind of dark. And I'm headed west. And suddenly, I see walking towards me a chicken. <laughs> and the chicken gets closer. Now, I love animals. And I you know, know something about animal husbandry. But I had no thought of keeping chickens or you know, there were no chickens in my life. And I didn't know enough to know that, A, I didn't know that nobody on Boundbrook owned chickens. And I did know that at that time of night, chickens are going into roost. Because it was really, you know, going to be dark pretty soon. And I also knew, and this is a sad thing, the people that don't want animals anymore dump them on Boundbrook. 
people I know that work for the park, you know, say, oh yeah, people have been dumping chickens back there for years. Somebody once dumped two peacocks there, but that's another story. So I get out of the truck and I go, chicken. And it's a hen. She's a hen. And she's all hen-pecked, which means, and she, she looks kind of elderly. And, you know, she's got her back is all bare and sort of got little bits of blood on it. And she doesn't have many tail feathers. And she's, she's a mature hen. She's one of those hens that has sort of a beard. And I say, chicken. And she starts talking to me. And she has this melodious jazz voice. And I go up to her carefully. I'm pretty good with animals. I'm, you know, easy. And I pick her up, and she's light as a feather. She's dehydrated, probably, and kind of dazed, and far from home. And I'm standing there in the dusk, under the trees, holding this hand, thinking, now what? But I got back in the truck with a hen, and I put her on the seat next to me facing forward, and I prayed. I, I'm not religious, respectfully, to those of you who are, but I did pray that she wouldn't shit on my boyfriend's <laughs> truck seat, because they don't test for that. You know, you know, chicken, coffee, donuts, yeah, they test for that, but they don't te you know, test for chicken shit when they're doing car seat testing. So I then thought, okay, now what? And I drove west, and I got to Boundbrook, and she was still sitting on the seat. She was a pretty weak old hen. And I looked down at her, and she looked up at me. And then I thought, I don't know what to do. So I got out, and I, in fact, I saw, in fact, I saw the sun and the moon go like that. <laughs> and then, I gotta hurry up. Then I come back to the truck, and she's not on the seat. She's down on the ground, and she's laid a beautiful, pale blue-green egg on the floor of the truck. And I get in and I hold the egg, it's warm. And I put her back on the seat and I take her home. And I feel that thing I hadn't felt for a really long time. I felt like I'd fallen in love with an old bedraggled hen. <laughs> and I felt that feeling of complete release and it kind of saved this end of my life because I realized if I'm open to something and I say yes to it that comes my way, I can have that feeling again, which is so lovely when you're young. She went on to lay many eggs. She grew all her feathers back, and she died at a very ripe old age. Bridget. Um, I have to say one thing before I start on my save story, which is always a sin to go off on another story, but uh, I had a boyfriend who had a cool car. It was a very cool car. It was a red convertible. He used to pick me up at school because he was older. He'd graduated. He, he'd graduated. But um, when I got into the car with him, what would happen is the car would stall. So in front of all my friends who were watching me with this older boy with long hair and cool red convertible, I'd have to get out and push the car until it started. <laughs> so my story about being saved. 
Uh, actually, it's through the religious power of a colleague of mine who I spent many years training with. He was my diversity partner. And we used to, we were actors and we used to go into corporations and do these sketches. And once we were asked to do a change sketch, so we looked at the model of change, and it starts with denial, and then there's bargaining, and then eventually there's overwhelm, and then there's acceptance. And they wanted us to come into this team at AT&T where they were laying off people. It was a small team. And so we came in and we did this sketch, which I made a box that was called the, it was called the package, because they used to call it the package when they were laying people off. And um, I wonder if I can make this any higher. I feel like it's a little, can we get this a little higher? Sorry. Thank you. So, uh, and Walter would come flying in on a coat rack and we were, I was the he hectic, crazy person who wouldn't stop working and he was telling me the sea of change is coming. It was this really silly sketch that these managers liked. So we did that, I forgot about it, and then I got a call, this was at AT&T, I got a call from the head of PR from a for AT&T, and she said, we heard about this sketch you did a few months ago and that people really liked it, so we thought, we have an announcement to make, and we don't actually know the details, but we want you to come in and do that sketch. And I said, sure, and I said, very low price, I called my friend Walter. Walter said, okay. A couple of weeks late, later, uh, she calls again and says, well, it's not gonna be just for a, a team, it's actually gonna be for a department, there'll be about 30. Then she called again and said, I said, sure. Then she called again, she said it was gonna be, no, actually it's gonna be for about 300. Then it got to be 3,000. Then it got to be at Basking Ridge, which is the AT&T headquarters, and Every time I'd call Walter and he'd say, well, okay. Of course, where was I? I was totally in denial. I would say, oh, fine. So we get there and we find out that it's gonna be televised and then it's gonna be televised all over the world. And I said, oh, Walter, it's gonna be fine. Only Walter, who was very charming and wonderful, really had trouble with lines. And when I got scared, I would start writing instead of improvising stuff. So I was changing the lines and we were rehearsing the night before. And this PR woman comes up and says, we don't think it's gonna be any good. And I said, oh, it's gonna be fine. So the next day we're sitting in this auditorium which is filled with people. And we're, it's the, uh, all of AT&T all over the world. And this was in the 80s, so it was the only telephone company except that they had had divestiture and we were sitting there with this crowds and crowds and crowds of people and the head of Bell Laboratories decided not to come because he was scared because what he did was send another a president of somewhere who gets up right before Walter and I are supposed to get up on stage and do our little sketch and says oh we've decided to break into three parts and what that was was trivestiture, which was the largest downsizing in the history of America. No, the world, actually. It was the lar they were going to uh, split this great company, the Bell Labs company, they were going to sp spin that off, split into three parts. And guess what? Someone in the audience said, what's the strategy? You know, there are people that, like their grandparents worked there, right? It's, it was Ma Bell. He, and this, this president said, well, oh, well, we're just going to be in everything. That's why we split up. So then there's this gasp from the audience, like, what is going on? And guess what? We're up next.
So while this is going on, my partner, Walter, who was our sa savior at that point, he's, he was quite religious. And I was raised by ex-Catholics who didn't believe in anything. So I'm just sweating there. But I noticed that he's, he's praying next to me. And he says to me, I'm going to throw up. We got to get out of here. I got to throw up right now. So we clamber over the seats. We rush across the highway. We go into the special fancy Bell Labs cafeteria. And I watch my African-American partner eat comfort food. And I'm you know, raised by, an, I mean, I had a, an Irish Catholic nurse grandmother. There was no fat in our diet, none. Walter is eating mashed potatoes, fried chicken. He eats all this food. I'm watching him going, oh, God, it's, it's got to get worse. And he says, I'm fine. So we go back over, we go back, and we notice there are a few uh, snow uh, flakes falling as we clamber across, go over across the highway, back into the headquarters, sit down after we climb after over all these people. And I look at him, and he's resumed praying. And I'm going, I was raised by, you know, people who didn't believe in God. Oh, Walter, I hope you. He's praying, and they suddenly announce that they're, that, uh, it, it has, there's a big snowstorm coming and that we don't have to uh, perform because they're canceling the meeting. So, so that was my partner Walter's power. <laughs> months later, months later they call me and they say they don't want to pay because they say it was an act of God. And I say, no, no, it wasn't. But yes, it was. It was an act of God. Walter saved me. So next up, we have Terrence. So a, um, a tricky thing about going crazy is that you never really notice that it's happening. And it is, it, it's a gerund. You're going. But you don't notice until it's too late. And then it doesn't make any sense because you're not aware of the fact that you're crazy. If you're asking yourself the question, Am I going crazy? You're not going crazy because you have enough sense to do this. And this is all about how kind of education can just really mess with your mind if you're in taking physics and they, they start talking about how if you take a quarter because of the, the alignment of electrons and you take a quarter and you drop it enough times on a table, even though it has the appearance of being solid, the quarter can drop through. And and you don't want to tell this to teenagers, and, and you, you don't want to tell this to 14-year-olds and who, you know, the, the cortisol is going and the prefrontal cortex is not developed. And, and, and so I, it was too late by the time I realized that I had fully gone crazy. Um, in retrospect, it's all so very clear. You look back and you think, you know, this is the late 70s and cars didn't drive by themselves and so it's a very bad idea to close your eyes and try and control the car with your mind. Um, and, and, then, and then the other beautiful thing about being truly insane is that when you do, and you will, crash, you then reflexively justify what you've done by saying, I survived. I, I can do this. And so I had been coming from Hartford back to Boston, and I just, I, it just, just made sense. I'm just going to close my eyes. I can, I can fully control this vehicle with my mind, not knowing that you know, 40 years later, Google would have the exact same idea. <laughs> and so I did, and I closed my eyes, and I was, I, I'm driving, and it's night, and and I, and I woke 
kind of like with a start because I had obviously gone off 84 into this outcropping of rock. And I got out and I'm like, I am invincible! I am, I am all powerful! And I got out and the car is just completely smashed in. And I get out and I'm like, I am, I, I controlled the car to crash into this mountain. Now I'm going to move it. And I got out and I just, and I pushed the mountain and then I collapsed and this trucker woke me up and, and, and I and, you know, went to the hospital and it turned out I was fine because of Ralph Nader. And so then, you know, and, and there was a series of, of events that eventually led other people to know the things that were going on inside my head that weren't supposed to be happening. And one of them was going back to the physics thing. I was standing on a corner in Boston and I realized that, you know, if, if matter is not as it appears, if in fact the substances th which, which comprise, say, a tree or a table or a truck are not actually as they appear, then I should be able to, if I time it just right, go through that truck. And so I was standing on a corner and this, this, this truck was, was turning and I just thought, I'm going, to, I'm going to walk through this truck. And so I stepped off, and then the coolest thing happened. I didn't walk through the truck, but I flew. And so I flew, and I flew a long way. And I, again, in that reflexively self-justifying craziness, I'm like, I'm flying. This is the coolest thing ever. And then I landed, and then I wound up at, at MGH. And in, in a small office, and then the door locked, and then I was somewhere else. And I was with a bunch of people who were constantly drinking out of very small plastic cups. And, and it was very unfortunate, um, and, and not at all uh, a pleasant place to be. Years later, coincidentally, um, I was there in the early 80s, and I traveled to Honduras every year, and the weirdest kind of connection, and this is just a mere digression, I was standing next to a finca in Honduras, and it turns out that one of the people, one of the doctors I was traveling with was there at the same time, and we remembered each other. It was crazy. I'll give you his name because he's actually famous and he's written books about it. His name is Mark Vonnegut, Kurt's son. So we were at the same institution. We had a reunion in Honduras. It was beautiful. But, and so we would be drinking the Merrill and, and taking the Thorazine, or drinking the Thorazine and taking the Merrill and doing the ECTs and the sleepy EEGs, and they scrape your skull, and, and they kept talking about how this was gonna save you, this was gonna save you, and there are people walking around, and this one woman taking her knuckles and just walking down the hall, and she had the best line I've ever heard in my life, and she would just say, I am scissors, we are all scissors. And that was the only thing that ever made sense in that place. Like, fundamentally, that made sense. But even being crazy, I knew that I had to get out of there. And so it turns out that there's a little law, <laughs> imagine. And um, so I signed this note, and I got out in three days. So now I'm free, <laughs> which was great um, for me, not for all of you all. And, um, and, and I, so I, I had that moment of clarity, like, all right, I have this power um, that, that I can control things with my mind. And then the other problem, of course, is that you're thinking that there are, we live in a multiverse, you know, but this is pre-multiverse, this is pre-theory of everything, this is pre-string theory, but at that time, you're thinking, because of those damn teachers, that there are alternate universes. And so all of this makes sense, and I'm out, and I'm like, what am I supposed to do? And it just occurred to me that I have to go to Detroit because of salvation. And so I took a bus.
to Detroit, and I got in in the middle of the night, and I'm at the Greyhound bus station. This is in, you know, mid-'80s. And I was sitting there. I'm like, all right, what am I supposed to do? This is great. And I'm not feeling all that focused, but I, and I'm not aware that I'm crazy. And there were those little TVs that you put a quarter in, you'd sit there. And there was a woman sitting a couple seats down, and she just kept, she had these little fists that were like made out of iron. And she kept hitting herself in the thigh, saying over and over again, they never taught me the basics. They never taught me the basics. They never taught me the basics. And I went, and I sat next to her. And she just kept hitting herself, and I put my hand between her fist and her thigh. And she just hit my hand, and then she held it there, and then her little iron hand just grabbed mine. And I realized that she was crazy. And that at that moment, I no longer was. But the thing about salvation is that it's evanescent. And so even though I didn't get salvation from those little plastic cups and I got it momentarily from that woman with those little iron hands, salvation is a constantly recursive opportunity. So may we all have it. All right, this has been really, really, oh, I, just, I just love this theme. I'm so happy we did it. Uh, Steve. Well, I was inspired by the uh, cat story, so I've got one of my own. Uh, my first job out of school, um, my company uh, allowed me to go to Venezuela for a year. So my wife and I and my cat <clears throat> went from, took off from uh, Pittsburgh and we got to New York City. We uh, had made arrangements previously that we could take our cat in the, pers the people compartment of the airplane. And before we left Pittsburgh, I had made a, we had a wicker basket and a little kitty litter in the bottom. <clears throat> and I still remember taking off, and, and they allowed one animal in the um, personnel section of the airplane at the, in those days. So I still remember the flight leaving JFK in the, the, this wicker basket with our cat is sitting, is up in the front. And we're taking off, and over the roar of the jet engines, I hear, meow. <laughs> <clears throat> so we, we make it to Venezuela and work there uh, for, at a U.S. steel facility for 13 months, and we, it was time for us to leave. And we knew that you could have a cat in the person, people section of an airplane, and we made arrangements when we were leaving Venezuela, we could take this um, small flight from Puerto Ordaz, which is on the Orinoco River, up to Caracas, and we'd be able to get out of Venezuela finally. Well, <clears throat> we had made arrangements that, our, that, that, that the cat in the wicker basket could be in the personnel section of the airplane, leaving the small town in Venezuela. So we walk up to the gate and uh, the little Venezuelan with the rubber stamp says, you can't go on the airplane with that cat <clears throat> and you have to put it in the uh, luggage compartment. And there was no way we were putting our beloved cat in the luggage compartment of a small Venezuelan airplane. So we made a quick decision and said, um, instead of taking the one hour flight 
from the small town to Caracas, that we would instead get a cab and take a 12-hour cab ride. <laughs> so <clears throat> we go outside the, the, the uh, air, airport and we quickly make a quick negotiation. So for the same price of, I think it was 300 bolivars to get, take the airplane, we take the cab ride for 300 bolivars. And one thing we, I never did a good job of learning in that year was that you have to negotiate everything. Everything's negotiated down there. And I had never succeeded in learning how to negotiate very well. So in any case, I knew we were a little bit in jeopardy when the first thing the cab driver did was say, I have to take the uh, cab in and uh, get it lubricated and get it fixed up for the ride to Caracas. So he takes it into this garage, he puts it up on the lift, he gets it all fixed up so he can, with his 300 bolivars, he, he's got it all set and he can take us off to Caracas. <clears throat> so we get, in the, we get in the cab and we've got the wicker basket and we're in the back seat and we're going up and down and up and down all these little roads and he starts to worry about the, the, the right rear tire. And he keeps mentioning it in the broken Spanish. He's, he's explaining, oh, I'm worried about the right rear tire. So he finally says, how about I, we go up halfway and then I negotiate with another cab driver and he'll take you the rest of the way to Caracas and I can make sure I can get back to the little town without the problem of the, of the car breaking down. So we say, okay. So he goes ahead and, and he does that. And the first thing the second cab driver says is how much did you pay the guy originally? Was it 200 bolivars? And of course, we, the first guy kept all the profit, got the, half the trip and didn't have to go take 12 hours all the way up to Caracas. So anyways, we, <clears throat> the, the, last, the last leg of the trip, I remember going down the, the mountains to Caracas through these winding roads and there's these little, he's in the middle of this little, tiny little road going down the center and there's these crosses on the right and the left where they have these traffic accidents. So in any case, we finally made it to Caracas, got on the plane, thanked our lucky stars, we were on an American airline and we saved our cat and that's my celebration. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2015 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theater Company, Kate Langstaff and Vanessa Vardabedian and is sponsored by WOMR 92.1 FM and Boobalas by the Bay Restaurant in Provincetown. Find your next opportunity to join us live and tell your story at facebook.com slash mosquito story slam or via Twitter at mosquito story. Listen to all Mosquito podcasts on soundcloud.com slash mosquito story slam. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.